0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Glass House. Today we're going to do a little different thing. Uh, as I record this, it's December 17th, it's a Sunday. This afternoon I'm going to be driving to Jackson, Tennessee to wish farewell to one of my life heroes, a pastor who took me under his wing, Dr. Phil Jett from Inglewood Baptist Church, which was the place where I began my pastoral ministry. And there's a, there's a verse in Psalm 78 that speaks of David. It says he shepherded them with a pure heart he guided them with skillful hands and I cannot think of a verse that better captures the spirit of the ministry of Phil Jet than that verse he was a shepherd he taught me how to be a pastor he taught me where to stand during funerals always at the front of the casket near the head he taught me how to walk into a hospital room and gently pray for people He taught me how to endure criticism that was unfair and that felt misguided. I watched him shepherd and learned how to be a shepherd. He taught me, and he did it with a pure heart. Uh, I watched that man over and over say, don't take it personally, Ben. Anytime people would complain or push back on a decision that was made in the church that I could tell affected him, it was always, just don't take it personal, Ben. He had a pure heart, and he guarded his heart and continued to keep it pure. The man loved people more than any person I ever met, and he worshipped. If you ever stood next to Phil Jett in a corporate worship service, he was a man immersed in the activity. It was almost like the entire room disappeared as he enthusiastically worshipped the Lord, and occasionally he would look over at me while I was standing next to him as a protege, and he would say, it doesn't get any better than this, man. He loved to worship Jesus and he guided with skillful hands. Dr. Jett made a lot of hard decisions for the church, but he took the church from one place and led it to a higher place, which is all we can ask the Lord to help us do on this earth is to leave things far better than we found them. He left me better than he found me and a whole lot of other people. And so I wanted to re-air this episode this is me and Dr. Jet talking about transition in an episode about the challenge of transitioning the church from a older pastor to a younger pastor. Here's to you, Dr. Jet. I love you.
1: An indicator of a pastor not doing well, one of those indicators is if they accept too much ownership of the church. Mm -hmm. to the point they believe that this church couldn't have got here without my help. Mm -hmm. It couldn't have got here without my leadership. And when pastors step into that role of owning the ministry of the church versus leading the ministry of the church, I think it sets them up a little bit for that sort of grief process, for that sort of pain. Welcome,
0: you're listening to The Glass House, hosted by LifeWay. We're Ben and Lindley Mandrell, and we have conversations with leaders who have experienced the stress of ministry and have sensed a spotlight on their personal lives. We want to encourage ministry families and provide a glimpse inside their glass house. And before we start this episode, I want to invite you to participate in the conversation. If you have feedback to offer, a general question for Lindley or me, or if there's a topic you'd like for us to tackle in the future, email us at president@lifeway.com. We read every one of those emails. Welcome to this episode of The Glass House. It's January, Lemley.
2: It is the time for resolutions. We're going to change this year. It
0: is that time of year when people are thinking about what changes they want to make or transitions they need to make, and this episode is so fitting for this time of year because we wanted to do an episode on changing churches, yeah, transitioning churches.
2: I, I mean, we have now done this a few times, and I think been surprised every time as to how difficult it is, and not because of the pastor that comes in it's on our own heart like in our own emotions it has been so difficult to just leave a place that you love
0: it's like letting a child go that you've raised Mm -hmm. it's hard Mm -hmm. and it's harder in the moment than you realize it's going to be Mm -hmm. so on the episode today we actually have two guests Uh, we have dr phil jett who was the pastor at inglewood baptist church previous to me Mm -hmm. and we transitioned that church together and I got to interview with him and sit down and ask him some questions. What was that like? Which was a lot of fun mm-hmm. to reminisce. But also we have back on the show, Adam Mason, our friend who uh, leads the Counseling Center at Houston's First Baptist Church. And we're excited to hear from him on this subject because he deals with a lot of ministry families that have have or are trying to make this transition. It's very difficult. So if you're listening and maybe you're in the grief of transitioning a church or you feel like one is coming, we think this content will be really helpful for you. So back on the show today, we have Adam Mason, who heads up the counseling ministry at Houston's First. And Adam, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you, Ben and Lindley. It's
1: a pleasure to be here. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We're excited to have you back on on this topic because we know you work with pastors and wives, church leaders on a daily basis, and leaving well is not easy. Adam, as we think about couples leaving well in ministry, maybe handing off a church, where have you seen... Uh, people perhaps not
1: do this well? It's a great question, Ben. When I think about the couples I've worked with, uh, ministry couples in the last 30 years, and I think about the concept of leaving well, there's a couple of metaphors that come to mind for me. When I think about the pastors, the ministry couples that didn't leave well, in many ways that has felt like a divorce mm-hmm the there's an animosity there is a bitterness there's a resentment oftentimes on both sides both sides are wounded um, in my work with union baptist association here and the reconciliation team sometimes i would be assigned to the church or the church staff to help them deal with a situation of a poor leaving situation sometimes i've worked with the ministry couples and the the sense of pain, the sense of betrayal, the sense of hurt goes so deep. It is so significant. The churches I've seen that have participated in that process, that have been in a situation where the minister did not leave well, oftentimes move into a situation where the next two, three, four pastors uh, don't leave well either. Hmm. There seems to be the phrase of hurt people will hurt people. And so they become a bit of a clergy killer is a term that we use sometimes to describe these churches that are very difficult. They seem to be very guarded and seems to be a very difficult situation for the next ministry couple that comes in. We, we cannot overstate the significance of leaving well and the impact of not leaving well. When I think about the ministry couples I've worked with that did leave well, and I've been a part of churches that have, sent out ministry couples. It's a little bit like sending a child to college. There's an excitement. There's an enthusiasm. There's a, we want to follow you. We want to track what you're doing. We feel a part of your future success. We share in that. It's a launching of the individual. And the person who leaves oftentimes comes back, touches base. They're there as part of anniversaries. They're there for significant achievements. They're welcome back to the people very similar. And so when we look at the situation, we strive to be a church that launches the ministry, the minister and his family into the next ministry, almost like launching a child Mm. versus this divorce situation where there's bitterness and the relationship doesn't really seem to end. It just becomes transformed into this long running bitterness.
2: I wish there was a class on leaving well, you know, I mean, I wish seminaries, the things that seminaries could teach. I wish there was a class that said, you know, hey, you're you're not going to stay at one church for all of your ministry career. I mean, very few people do, of course. Um, and so, you know, here's how to to train your people to, you know, receive the next pastor that's going to come in, you know, to continue the relationships, all those kind of things, because I know for our experience, it it's been a bittersweet thing. I mean, m- neither church did we leave in bad terms. I mean, we left because we chose to leave and go do a different ministry, and so you know, it's it's been hard for us because when churches go in a different direction, you just you naturally you have to process it, and it's not even bad directions; it's good directions. I mean, you know, we don't have bad things to say. It's just it's just a processing.
0: It's kind of like when somebody buys the house that you've been living in and they completely paint and redecorate the house (laughs) and you look online on Zillow and see it and you think, oh, they took down my favorite wall or whatever, you know, and you feel like you're taking it personally, even though it's completely up to them to change the paint colors. We feel that way with churches that we've pastored because we take things like it was personal for us. It, It was part of our life's work. And it's, I think maybe it's humbling to us to see that churches move on from us or that people move on from us. We feel lonely in that maybe. I don't know. Counsel me there. What's going on?
1: <laughs> that's interesting. And in the research that we did through LifeWay that we repeated here recently, looking at pastoral attrition and why pastors leave the ministry, and we look at some of the other research that's been done in the area, one of the things that surfaces Is an indicator of a pastor not doing well, one of those indicators is if they accept too much ownership of the church Mm -hmm. to the point they believe that this church couldn't have got here without my help. Mm -hmm. It couldn't have got here without my leadership. And when pastors step into that role of owning the ministry of the church versus leading the ministry of the church, I think it sets them up a little bit for that sort of grief process, for that sort of pain. I think you're right
0: on, Adam. Would you just say more about what you just said? That's really profound, that how does a pastor and his wife come to a recognition that they're owning the ministry
1: rather than leading the ministry? What are some of the indicators there? Well, first of all, I I would say that that's a real temptation from Satan to own things. Hmm. And it really does feed into some of our Protestant work ethic, some of our American pragmatism, the sense that if we work hard that we're going to get good results and um, that if we invest ourselves and we do the best we can that things are going to work out well and that feet bleeds into the theology where we have this rather than a systematic theology we have almost a subtractionist theology in the sense that it's we're adding and subtracting to what god can do in the church with that mindset of ownership and It's if I do what's right, then this church is going to grow. And it's accepting too much ownership versus the stewardship part. Um, I sometimes call it a a formula theology, and we'll write that out as A plus B equals C, that A is everything that I do, and C is the desired consequence that I want to get. And so I I work on my—we talked about this, I think, last time—the strategies that we have. So I'll work on my strategies, and if I'm not getting— what I want, C, desired consequence, then I look at B, which is blame. Who can I blame? Because it's such a sense that I have complete control here, that if I'm doing what I need to do, that I'm going to get the results that I want to get. God's going to bless us. God's going to honor this. And if not, then the, the staff's not supporting me. The deacons aren't working with me. My family's not behind me. We look for somebody to blame. And when we're in that model, that sort of form of theology, we're in the mode of ownership. We're not in the mode of stewardship.
2: One thing that I really liked that Adam said was the definition or the difference of ownership versus stewardship within the church. And I know that that hit us particularly hard because if you've listened to our first episode, what we the first original, what we had said was that we really felt like the Lord when it says he gives and takes away, that he had to take away storyline from us because I do think we had become the owners of it and not the stewards of it.
0: And even how we talk about it, he had to take it from us as if we ever owned it. Right. Like that's the I mentality. Know, yes, I know. And it's hard to break mentally from that mentality. You know, the parable of the steward of, of the talents that we talk about, you know, it really is a story about how Jesus teaches that we've been given something to steward for a period of time and then he's going to take it back. Mm-hmm. And that includes our churches, our ministries. Uh, They're not ours to own. They're ours to lead for a period of time. And then it's something else. It's a new assignment. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot easier to talk about it than it is to live it out.
2: Well, I do think this applies to other areas of life as well. I mean, I know we have been surprised by the amount of listeners who are not in ministry, but there are business owners out there. There are, you know, lawyers with firms. There are dentists. When I was a dental hygienist, I worked for four dentists. And one of them was an older gentleman, and when he retired, it was really he came back to visit every day. His patients had a hard time, so I mean, I don't want to just typecast this only to ministry leaders. Transition is hard;
0: it's an identity shift that everybody has to go through. And I think there's nothing that prepares for you, you for that until you're going through it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's good to know it's happening. In a later episode, you're going to hear from Chuck DeGroat. I thought it was just interesting that he he's going to point out to us that church planters are more prone to narcissism even than those who lead established churches and having been a leader in an established church and a church plant i get that because when you start something it really does feel like your baby mm-hmm. even though it's not spiritually it feels like that in a practical way like this is ours and now we have to hand it off mm-hmm. and that can put a lot of pressure because you want it to you want it to go exactly how you envision it should in the future which isn't even fair to the next pastor
2: right well, I mean, I'll I'll be vulnerable here with um, the pastor that followed us at Storyline. We had moved into a building and decorated it and loved it and knew they have recently done some redecorating on it. And it's beautiful. Like, it's, it really is beautiful. And if I didn't have any personal attachment to it, I would be like, that looks so good. I mean, some of the things they've done make good sense with the way they've used the space, but it's still... Like our baby, right. and I'm like, oh, they took down this sign that I loved. And there's nothing wrong with that.
0: They improved upon yes, what we started. Did. And yet it still hurts because we were at the furniture store and picked out that piece of furniture. How dare he move that. Right. And those kind of things, you think you're going to be above that when you leave a church, but you're prone to all those emotions. Pastors come in, they change programs, they change the vision of the church. They change focus they change the service times they can do whatever they want
2: mm-hmm.
0: within the bounds of scripture and nothing quite prepares you for it until you go through it
2: i also think that we see it differently when other people do it but to be fair you came into life weight and changed some of the values some things like that and so you know we we come into new places and do that and it seems expected and right but when you leave a place and someone else does it, it's, it's wrong. Like, it's just painful.
0: I want the freedom to make this thing my own, but I don't want to give other people that freedom. Right. <laughs> and so it's, it really is, it, your mind plays tricks on you when you leave a church. Mm-hmm. I also think one of the things that came up in the conversation that's important is just how difficult it is for the departing pastor and wife. Because there really is a silence period where you have to be careful engaging with the people that you've grown to love because you don't want to be disruptive. But it feels like a loss, like a grief process mm-hmm. because you miss those people and you want to stay connected, but you want to be careful. One part of the conversation with Dr. Jett that I enjoyed was just asking him like, hey, what was it like when I took over? Was it hard for you to see me making changes? And he had some great things to say about how the departing pastor really needs to support the new pastor unless he's making morally bankrupt decisions. You have a lot of wisdom on that. So let me ask you this. I've never had a chance to ask you this directly. What was it like sticking around, watching this young guy come in, making changes, maybe even changes in the decor of the church or the painting of the church, things you and Marilyn had been directly involved in selecting, and here comes this new guy changing it all. Well, first of all,
3: as you know, my wife got sick. Yeah. She was had cancer. And that was dominating my life. But I saw a couple of three things and I'm thinking should I talk with him about this? Right. <laughs> I uh, don't think you ever did. No, I never did. You changed the bylaws and that bothered me a lot. I remember that. We didn't we didn't change bylaws, we created bylaws and I thought as I read them, uh, I thought Yeah, you saw some potential challenges. I saw potential challenges. There turned out to be potential challenges after you, but anyhow, Uh, the transition, I come back to say transition. The former pastor needs to support the current coming through pastor. Unless there's an immoral, impossible situation. Yeah. And he needs to support the church. Right. And so many times that may not be true because something is changing
0: and uh and church members will come to you and say dr you got to say something you know he's changing you know
3: the 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 bulletin boards in the hallway absolutely right i said okay we'll make that a matter of prayer
0: (laughs) dr let me ask you this question i think our identity as human beings does get tied up in what we do just naturally especially for a pastor When you leave a church, you have to go through a process of remembering you're a person apart from being the pastor of that church. What was that process like for you when suddenly your whole life you'd been a senior pastor and then you weren't? Well, first of all, I hadn't been a senior
3: pastor my whole life. That's true. I'd been an accountant for a a utility company, You know, I'd done some other things. So when God called me to be a preacher, it was so hard set that I was going to do that, and I really didn't know a pastor. I was probably as bad as you were, Ben. I really (laughs) didn't. I I had never known a pastor except one that we played golf a little bit with. And so when the Lord gives me a word, like hiring you, like stepping down, somehow or another, I take that word as his word, and I don't look back. I think what pastors need to do when they step down saying, okay, how can I help that church go forward? And not get in the way. And not get in the way. And not take things personally. And not take things personally. Make a decision. It's his decision. We're going to support it, going to live with it. It's not an immoral decision. It's not an unethical decision. So we're going to support it. It's a program decision or a Decoration decision or something
0: like that. When you were called away from pastoral ministry um, and you went through that process, imagine someone listening today who who is going through that now. And they're trying to figure out, what does my life look like if I'm not a pastor? What word of encouragement would you give to that guy right now? Your
3: calling is to, first of all, encourage other pastors, other ministries, and know that you still have a ministry. Hmm. Now, many pastors move away from the church where they pastored because they don't want to do sure. that. But wherever you go, if God's called you to be a pastor, you're a pastor until the day you die.
0: As you think about couples out there that are feeling maybe convicted even in this moment because they've not left a church well, what's the way back?
1: I'm a licensed professional counselor. I've counseled people for over 30 years. So obviously I'm a proponent of counseling, but what makes counseling work is it provides an area, a safe place where people can be honest and real and transparent. So if you can find a place to be honest and real and transparent with a mentor, with a friend, with a, a confidant, that's what we're shooting for. That's what we're trying to accomplish. If you can't find that, then find a professional, find someone that you can, um, go to and see and be real and, and open this up and, and process it with get to a place that you can be honest about what you're experiencing that's where the healing takes place we take what's in the dark and we bring it out into the light mm. Yeah, you know, we look at that verse from paul about forget forgetting what lies behind i press forward to the high prize and we use that as a way of telling people you just move on you just move on and i don't think that what that that is what Paul is saying as much as he's saying, move forward, don't move on. And move on is this way of saying that, you know, what happened to me doesn't impact me. It doesn't have uh, any hold over me. I'm just going to ignore it and then try to try to move on versus moving forward. When you move forward, you're moving forward with an understanding of who you are and the impact of the past so I try to get people to focus not on moving on, trying to sweep everything under the rug and forgetting about it, to moving forward, recognizing that this has happened to me, it has impacted me. And that's going to play a role as I move forward in some strongholds, in some belief systems, in some wounds, in some strategies, some boundaries, some vows that I make in terms of how I relate with other people. Here's the question to wrap us up today. I want you to
0: imagine there's a ministry couple out there. They left a great church. Maybe he was on a support position, great culture. Now they've come to a new church. The honeymoon period has worn off and they're really missing where they were. They're wishing they could turn back the clock. What would you say to that couple if they were sitting in front of you with that
1: story? First of all, I would ask them to explore the expectations they had for the new church, for the new position. Because so many times it's our expectations that sabotage us. Uh, So I would begin with an exploration of the expectations. Second thing that I would ask them to consider is what is it they believe that they've lost? So many times when the present becomes difficult, we romanticize either the past or the future. Hmm. I've never done that a day in my life. Keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, other people. Other, yeah, other people, people. Not all those, I'm glad these people out there are listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh you know, well, that former church was so wonderful. You know, were, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us to the desert to bury us? You know, because it was life back then wasn't so bad. Well, yeah, it was miserable. You were in slavery, right? But when the p- present becomes difficult, we romanticize the past, or we romanticize the future. The, the future is that grass is always greener. My grandfather, who had a sixth grade education taught me and he was a farmer. So he said, son, if the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, you need to water and fertilize your own yard. (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) I thought that was really good. You know that rather than romanticizing the future, there's some work that needs to be done right now. So that's, I would explore the expectations. I would explore the, are you romanticizing the past? What's the reality of the past? Uh, I would explore vision. What's the vision of, of the person God created you to be? And what does that look like for you to be where you are right now? Where is God moving in you right now to release more of the vision, more of the godly strength, more of the godly beauty within you in your current situation or circumstance?
2: Adam said an interesting quote. He said, when the present is difficult, we romanticize the past or the future. And I thought that was so interesting to me because I always hear, you know, rose-colored glasses. And I guess we do hear the saying a lot about, you know, the grass is always greener. But I tend to romanticize the past more than the future. But then I do remember when kids were little and it was like, oh, if we can just get a few years down the road. As if a few years down the road, it's not going to be hard. I mean, we were just talking last week of how this season of parenting with four teenagers, not because of their attitudes, but their busyness has been so hard on our marriage. And Adam even alluded to that you know, privately when we had hung up of how it can be a really hard time on the marriage. And so... We for years were looking forward to these, and then now we never even get to see each other because we're in the cars going different ways. Well,
0: in ten years from now, we're going to look back on these photographs and think,
2: "Oh, it was such a great time. We had all four kids
0: under the roof, and look at all these Christmases and all these things." And we won't remember the stress of literally Ubering them across Mm -hmm. the city Mm -hmm. every day. And so our mind plays tricks on us. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on remembering, Uh, but there's a lot the Bible says about it. Paul says, "You know, forget what is behind, press on toward the goal." So in a sense, yeah, don't look back. You're not going that way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot to do in the scripture about stopping and reflecting, you know, building the stones of Ebenezer. There is, a, there is something to remembering that's important. And I think this is challenging in ministry because we look back on the past with rose-colored glasses. We look at the future with an imagined idealism. Mm-hmm. But the present is really all we have with mm-hmm. all of its pain and with all of its pleasure. And it's hard to live in the present when your mind keeps taking you back to the past.
2: I know that for us personally, there have been numerous walks where we've literally prayed that God would take off the rose-colored glasses because no matter how hard things have been here on different times, there's been, if we remember correctly, we were coming upon a really challenging season at Storyline 2. We were in a brand-new building four months in, already having to figure out when to add a third service, we don't have enough volunteers for a third service. Do we do a night? Do we do a morning? People like to ski. Do we do Sunday night? I mean, we were coming into a really hard season. And so we think back like everything was just easy.
0: Problem-free.
2: No, we didn't have any staff problems. Everybody was great. Well, that wasn't true. I mean, there, there was hard things. And so, I mean, we really have literally prayed, God, take the rose-colored glasses off our eyes. The
0: reason this content is so important, because if you're listening and you're at a new church and the honeymoon is over, as it does end. You're feeling like you miss your old relationships. Y- you miss the victories of yesterday and all the great things that happened at your last church, and there's a tendency to think, "Well, I'm in the wrong place because that felt so much better back then." Mm-hmm. When that's not exactly how it really is. Mm-hmm. That's your mind playing tricks on you. And so, staying content, Paul said, "I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances." and focusing on what you have today really is the best way forward. The Glass House is brought to you by Lifeway. It is produced and edited by Angie Elkins with help from William Hall, sound engineering by Donnie Gordon, artwork by Heather Brzezinski, and photography by Rebecca McVeigh.